Hello. Hi. So uh, welcome back to The Weirdest Thing. This is our yep. podcast about all sorts of weird shit we find either in books, on the internet, sometimes from, from each other, from each other, air disaster TV shows, whatever, really. So. Tabloids at the supermarket checkouts. Yeah. Mystic revelations from beyond. Yeah, whatever. So anyway. <laughs> like stuff that shit that comes to us in dreams. <laughs> yeah. Uh... What, if, what if our podcast just turned into us just narrating our weird ass dreams? What if it was just lucid dreaming? Yeah. <laughs> this is lucid dreaming with Amelia Poro and Scotty Milder. Uh, and then it was just us talking about our weird ass dreams. Yeah. <laughs> Like the one where I was swimming, riding an alligator in a swimming pool. I think yep. I told you about that one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Wait, think, who are you? Oh, yeah. I'm Scotty Milder. Yep. I'm, I'm Amelia Ampuero. And we are the hosts of this podcast. Wow. That was, that was real awkward. Yep. So. Yeah. <laughs> Still, again, we're not, we're, we have. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, happy uh, 25th uh, anniversary. This is, I believe, episode 25. Oh, it is? Yeah. Uh, unless that was last week's episode. Uh-oh. We're okay. somewhere well, around 25 Yeah, we're episodes. somewhere around 25 episodes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It feels like I've, like, there's part of me that feels like it should be way more. And then that also feels right. I would say it feels about like 25 to me. Yeah. All right. Well, All I think right. you're starting this week. Oh, so. shit. Yeah, that's right. I am. Okay. Sorry. It's been a bit of a week. I'll just give our listeners a little peek behind the curtain since we're so you know, we're so elusive, uh, on this podcast, <laughs> but my, uh, my dog that I newly adopted had to have emergency surgery this week. And that was a little scary and, uh, a little crazy. And I feel like it just put everything off. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what time it is. Uh, cause right. I've just been, been playing nursemaid to this dog, um, yeah. but I'm here and I'm ready and I'm yeah. ready to, yeah, we've, both been dealing with doggy issues this week because yeah. yeah my dog got diagnosed she's she's getting older she's getting some arthritis she's also like i got fairly roundly scolded by the vet for letting her get so fat so <laughs> it's kind of a combination of things <laughs> it was was your vet and like it's <laughs> was your vet like your dog is is fat like you you have to do something well yeah when she called with the results from like the examination she was mm -hmm. like, well, looks like uh, Bowie put on the COVID-15. Like, oh, <laughs> I was like, yep, she sure did. She's like, yeah, yeah, you better, uh, you better get on that. <laughs> um, Yeah, I, yeah. my, not this dog, but another dog that I had, who was one of the best dogs ever, he had gotten rather portly and I had taken mm -hmm. him to the vet one time and she walked in and she was like, your dog is fat. And I was <laughs> like, oh, oh man. Don't body shame my dog. <laughs> <laughs> but he knew he was like sitting and like his little pot belly was hanging out. And I was like, oh, he is yeah, a little yeah. portly. This isn't good for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So okay. we got two uh, doped up dogs. Hopefully they won't interrupt the podcast too much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if they do, apologies and, <laughs> um, and let's rock and roll. Okay. Right. So I was, you know, we talked about this a little, we texted a little bit about this. I was going to do Mesmer. I think mm -hmm. his name is, his first name is Franz, I, Franz Mesmer. Is either Hans or Franz, I don't know. I think it's Franz. The word mesmerize comes from that. He sort of, I don't know if he invented hypnosis, but that was the kind of the thing is that when yeah. I went to go look into it, I was like, this actually isn't that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just a, like a white dude who 
you know, it was like, oh, I'm, I'm like hypnotizing people and stuff. Yeah. So I am instead, I'm going to talk about hysteria, pelvic massage, and the history of vibrators today. Mm, all right. Hey, oh, sources for this are McGill.com, the history of hysteria, ladyscience.com, diseases of virgins and spinsters, the gynophobia mm. history of chlorosis and hysteria, ah. an article from Mother Jones called Female Hysteria and the Sex Toys Used to Treat It. Wikipedia, obviously, The mm. Lancet, the National Library of Medicine, an article from Gizmodo called The Steam-Powered Vibrator and Other Terrifying Early Sex Machines. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, you're going to have to uh, expand on that once we get there. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, and an article from Daily Beast called Hysteria and the Long Strange History of the Vibrator. Okay. Um, let's jump in. The word hysteria comes from the Greek word for uterus, which in I guess in, in ancient Greek is hysteria. But before the Greeks were even like thinking about uteruses and hysteria and all that stuff, the Egyptians were already recording instances of what they called wandering womb in mm. 1900 BC. Okay. Symptoms included uh, stuff like choking, the inability to speak and paralysis. To cure this wandering womb syndrome where they actually thought that the womb was like moving through the body okay. and applying like pressure or stifling other organs, Egyptian doctors would prescribe rubbing smelly substances on the vulva to mm. entice the uterus back to its normal position or smelling or swallowing unsavory herbs to push the uterus back down. Yeah. This, yeah. This does not sound like quackery at all. Right. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I just got to think that like, they were like, uh, like maybe it's a free floating thing, you know? I mean, I um, just, just to me, like the, the leap you must take between like oh i'm experiencing paralysis okay let's let's rub some smelly shit on your vulva to fix it yeah yeah i guess i should i mean it's not a i'm, I'm not gonna say a trigger warning but i guess maybe a slight content warning i am i'm obviously gonna be talking about like vulvas and uteruses and mm -hmm. vibrators and uh yeah, so for all you dudes out there who are freaked <laughs> out by vulvas and uteruses like now's your now's your chance to just book on out of here I'm actually going to say, you know, like fix yourself a drink and uh, <laughs> sit and listen. Yeah, uh, learn, you, you, maybe learn some stuff. Yeah, maybe learn some stuff. So around, so that's going on, like I said, in Egypt around 1900 BC, around 500 BC, the Greeks kind of get in on the hysteria game and they accept that Egyptian belief that like the womb is this like free floating thing that wanders through the body, but okay. they add to it the belief that the inability to bear children and or failure to marry were also symptoms. Mm, yeah. So along with the choking inability to speak paralysis, it was also like, oh, you can't get pregnant or, oh, you can't get married. <laughs> hysteria. <Okay. laughs> All right. Yeah. The Romans thought that hysteria was due to a diseased womb mm. or a disruption in reproduction like either a miscarriage or menopause. Okay. The Greeks were also working off of Hippocrates, Hippocrates' medical texts, which used this like wandering womb hypothesis. And mm -hmm. it's around that time that Plato was like, yo, the womb is an animal within an animal that wanders <laughs> all over the body, closing up the airways and results in like strange behavior and disease in women. Okay. So he was like, it's its own thing. Wow. Like its own 
cognizant. This is just just thing. lots of dudes that are just entirely flummoxed by right. It's concept <laughs> of women, but right. It's a it one hundred percent. It is a lot of dudes just, coming up with just mansplaining your wandering. I guess, to you. I guess so. And then around two hundred BC, Roman physician I don't know if it's Galen or Galen start saying that what actually causes hysteria is a lack of sex. Okay. Like if you're not getting laid enough, that's what's going to be giving you hysteria. And his solutions were, if you were married, have sex with your husband. And if you were unmarried, get a pelvic massage from a midwife. Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. If you hear the word pelvic massage and you're like, "Mm," you are 100% right. Like that is... Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to get back to that in a sec, but okay. a big question in all this is like, what is all the fuss about hysteria in the first place? Like how right. terrible is this quote unquote disease that everybody is so focused on figuring out how to treat it? Symptoms of hysteria. And this is sort of like through the ages mm-hmm. include, but are not limited to shortness of breath, anxiety, insomnia, fainting, amnesia, paralysis, pain, spasms, convulsions, vomiting, deafness, bizarre movements, seizures, hallucinations, inability to speak, infertility, sexual forwardness, irritability, agitation, sleepwalking, severe muscle cramps, total body anesthesia, which means like you can't feel anything, mm-hmm. being too quiet, being too loud, Ugh. kleptomania, laughing too much, and basically just generally acting outside the norm of societal expectations. Yeah. And are they are they only like noticing when this shit happens with women? Like, because I mean, a lot of this just sounds like neurological disorders and stuff ding, but ding, it's like ding, ding, ding. when the dudes are like having mm-hmm. seizures they're like eh, he's fine yeah i but mean then a woman mm-hmm. is too quiet they're like hysteria <laughs> and she's probably just like can you all just, just leave me alone shut um for a minute. yeah yeah, yeah. um and okay. I, I, like that was actually my next point is none of these symptoms when seen in men were attributed to some type of like mysterious man disease Yeah, some animal wandering through your body or whatever. Right. So hysteria, uh, like, as you can probably already tell, has some pretty deep roots in gynophobia, which is a fear of women. That is not to be confused with misogyny, which is a Mm -hmm. hatred of women. Uh, Gynophobia went hand in hand with a like a, a general kind of like revulsion at women's sexuality, menstruation, childbirth. Mm-hmm. They were all like, ooh, it's it everything that happens down there, with the exception of our penises going in there, is is all pretty icky. Yeah. Fun little sidebar fact, it is thought that gynophobia was responsible for the dangerous Amazon myth of women who matched men's physical strength and agility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So let's get back to this pelvic massage. <laughs> okay. Because that's that's honestly what we're all here for. Galen's technique would be used and cited for centuries to come because mm. it was so effective. This is a quote, following the remedies and arising from the touch of the genital organs required by the treatment, there followed twitching accompanied at the same time by pain and pleasure, after which she emitted turbid and abundant sperm. From that time on, she was free of all the evil she felt. Hmm, Okay. Mm -hmm. And I read that and I was like, hold up, sperm? Mm-hmm. Like what's going mm-hmm. on there? Is it like that's basically a squirter? Like, <laughs> sorry, not, not an A, Scotty. Like corny. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out the the biology that's happening. Well, Galen and his like fellow old timey, old timey, his fellow like ancient physicians believe that hysteria was caused by a womb polluted with fluids that they called female sperm. 
Oh, okay. So they didn't. So it might have been something like female ejaculation. It might have been lubrication. It might mm-hmm. have. But it just goes back to knows. like woman parts gross. Right. And, um, and, and again, like female sperm is this polluted fluid that's right. coming out and, you know, going along with that male sperm was just I, like put it on everything because it was terribly healing. It was incredibly <laughs> healing. It was, you know, a, of course. Yeah, obviously. Put that shit in your toothpaste. Yeah, like rub it on your face, like, you know, give it to your give it to your crops, all that good stuff. All of these ideas having to do with all of this stuff will become the basis of Western thought on hysteria. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians, Romans, and Greeks are like rocking along with their incorrect, but I do have to say like understandable diagnosis. Like I can sit here and be very judgy about what they were doing, but this was also the time that they were like, like we always say like, oh, your, your humors are out of balance. That's what's making you sick. I mean, at least they're trying to figure something out. Yeah. I mean, they're not just like basis on which to go. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like originally, like with the Egyptians and stuff, there was stuff that they were like, th- like these women are dealing with these ailments and we're trying to find a reason for them. Yeah. So yeah, they're rocking along with this like incorrect, but understandable diagnosis, given what they know about female anatomy, when the Christians come along and like, you know, just really decide to fuck everything up. Mm. So this ranges from about the 5th century to the 13th century. And during this time, Christians like St. Augustine declare that human suffering comes from sin. Therefore, hysteria must be due to satanic possession. Yeah, of course. So satanic panic, Mm -hmm. old school style. Yeah. And it's here, it's in this period that treatment of hysteria moves from the medical to the spiritual. So instead of like salves and ointments and pelvic massage, remedies move to prayers, amulets, and exorcisms. And Mm -hmm. they are administered by priests instead of doctors. Mm -hmm. And that stays the truth for centuries. This also becomes the time when women who are diagnosed with hysteria are believed to be witches. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they are interrogated, tortured, and executed for their symptoms. Yeah. So that sucks. Yeah. The first known written use of the word hysteria dates back to 1602 during the trial of Elizabeth Jackson. Jackson had been accused of witchcraft after the teenaged Mary Oliver was afflicted with violent fits after a couple of altercations with Jackson. Mm. There was a physician named Edward Jordan who tried to come in and be like, hey, 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 Mary Oliver isn't the victim of witchcraft. She probably has hysteria. Yeah. But Jordan couldn't offer any cure for the hysteria. So the judge was like, that's not a real thing. (laughs) And declared, yeah, yep. And declared that the syndrome didn't exist. And Jackson was found guilty of witchcraft. So just like assuming that she was like causing a demonic possession or something. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That she, she put did, her witchy, did witchy, her witchy work shit and, mm-hmm, yeah. on Mary Oliver. And that's what was going on throughout the 15 and 1600s activists, which I was like, I don't know why it just struck me that I was like, <laughs> I mean, of course they have, but I was like struck yeah. by the fact that there were activists in the 15 and 1600s, but activists and scholars start trying to like, start trying to uh, push to relabel hysteria back to a medical condition rather than mm-hmm. a spiritual one in the yeah. Because we're moving kind of into the age of enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. In the late 1500s, pelvic massage to bring about hysterical paroxysm, mm. which just to be clear is an orgasm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like 
That's all it is, <laughs> becomes the treatment for hysteria. It was suggested that women should be, quote, strongly encountered by their husbands, while unmarried women should use midwives to, ugh, this makes me a little queasy just to think about it. Unmarried women should use midwives to rub ointment or tickle the top of the neck of the womb, which is the cervix. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sounds- I mean, I don't even have a cervix and that sounds intense. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember hearing in the past about pelvic massage as a treatment for hysteria and thinking like there was no way that that wasn't some pervy shit. Yeah. Like I, it's, it's, I, I, (laughs) (laughs) I cannot believe that anybody bought, like, we're going to go in there. We're going to like rub around on her genitals and give her a pelvic massage Mm -hmm. until she has this hysterical paroxysm and then she'll be free of it. And nobody was like, that just sounds like you're masturbating her. Yeah. Like that's all that sounds like, but nope, they just went. Uh, Yeah. But I guess, I guess they didn't around 1660, an English surgeon by the name of Nathaniel Highmore one says, Hey, just like FYI for everybody, hysterical paroxysms are orgasms. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> like right like we sure, all get lots that. lots of parent heads exploded when he said that 100 and two also admits that it's not real easy he compares mm. it to trying to rub your stomach and pat your head at the same time <laughs> <laughs> like in doing the research for this i was just like i there's there's a couple of things one that nobody's like, Hey, this massage that you're giving to achieve hysterical paroxysm, mm-hmm. like you're looking to achieve an orgasm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that nobody's like really saying that. <laughs> and <laughs> two, that people are like, what is this hysterical paroxysm you speak of? Like, yeah. was the female orgasm like that elusive? Mm-hmm. And well, that's, that's the only thing that I can think of. I mean, I'm sure like the men folks of the time spent literally zero time like, thinking about it, thinking about how am I going to like pleasure my wife? Like, I'm sure that was not entering into the, this is like the type, like whenever I hear stories like this, it just makes me think of like, not to shade any of our listeners, but like anyone who's like into like Ren fairs and like sort of that romantic view of like this past. I'm like, this is the shit that people were dealing with. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. It's not a bunch of like corset ripping and stuff. Like it was a- yeah, like everybody's teeth were falling out from scurvy. And everyone was having hysterical paroxysms, you know? <laughs> Like, <laughs> yeah. And women were like, fuck, finally, somebody's getting me off. Um, <laughs> so he says that he says the thing that it's like, Hey guys, like this is an orgasm. And then everybody is like, no. And like, they don't talk about it again for centuries. Yeah, They were really like, no, it's not in the 1680s. <laughs> hysteria becomes the second most common diagnosis for women after a fever. It's hysteria fever. Well, I mean, it's just because it sounds like just like whenever a woman did anything, it was hysteria. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit. Clearly, there are some obvious, like, there are some very real ailments and diagnoses that, sure, are, like, ailments like the that are seizures happening in there. and things. Yeah. Right. But then there's other stuff where it's just like, mm, so we'll she's, she's, just, she's just talked back a little bit. So, demons. <laughs> Yeah, demons. Massage her, her pelvis. Okay, so in 1697, English physician Thomas Sydenham uh, says hysteria is he like, okay, so up until this point, they're like, you know, wandering womb, it's a physical thing, you're getting too much sex or not enough sex or whatever. And this Thomas Sydenham guy comes along and he's like, no, it's an emotional condition. This begins to lay the groundwork for it being considered a mental disorder. Okay. This could like sound 
bad. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it sounds bad, but like the truth of it is it's very likely that a lot of these women and probably men, but we'll get into that a little bit later. We're actually suffering from mental illnesses and neurological disorders. Right. So this thing of saying like, this is an emotional disorder is it's not great, but it is like it's a teeny tiny step in the right direction. Like they're, they're trying to kind of, but it sounds like cause they're lumping in a lot of things with just an emotional disorder. And then mm-hmm. this is the time where like people are being thrown in asylums and kind of just yeah. locked away, you know? Yes, so, like, absolutely. You know, maybe like, yeah, it's a step towards progress, but it's not progress. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So what do we have? Like, what do we, what do we have so far in terms of what we know about Historia? It's what, what we have is basically a bunch of symptoms that run the gamut from real mm-hmm. to inconvenient for society, meaning of course, men, right. The default diagnosis was bound to be something specific to the mysterious female body. Like, Yeah. I think that is so funny that they're like, well, obviously, you know, like, like a little bit, like we were saying before, like we see that this guy over here is having these fits, mm-hmm. but when this woman has it is it's some like elusive, dangerous, mysterious female problem that, right. that we, we really need to get a hold of. So yeah, something specific to this, to the mysterious female body, especially when so many women were diagnosed with hysteria were childless and therefore like dodging their social responsibility Mm -hmm. as well as being, I saw this a lot, being vulnerable to health issues that came with a celibate lifestyle. So really suspicious. mm -hmm. So really this is all about women are here to, I mean, to essentially be like broodmares, right? Right for men. And there's like a socially accepted way in which that can happen, which is yeah. the marriage. It, it just, it, it's just, it starts to get real fishy, but this brings us up to about the Victorian era. And like, you know, the Victorians are going to make everything worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As like, they do. yeah, you know, they're just, they're just going to completely almost knocked over my drink, completely fuck shit up. So hysteria becomes like a full-blown epidemic during the Victorian era Mm -hmm. with a quarter of all women suffering from it. That's a, that's a lot. Um, uh, And it's just, it's just more, it's like, just back to that idea. It just sounds like they're, like you said, anytime a woman is doing anything that the men folk are, are not behind, it's just like, being like called hysteria. Yeah. But that's not the only female disorder that women are suffering from. Um, During this time, another disorder by the name of chlorosis Hmm. starts becoming very popular and it is an equally disturbing like disease, but it's less extroverted than hysteria. So symptoms of chlorosis include lack of appetite, fatigue, moodiness, interruption of menstruation, pale complexions, and slim figures. Chlorosis was like the expected female behavior of the day on steroids. Yeah. And even though only women suffered from chlorosis, (laughs) it deeply affected the men in their lives because chlorosis hurt the chances of these women getting married. So a lot of the stuff that's talked about is like fathers being like, you know, my daughter and she's super sick and blah, blah, blah. And this is going to hurt her chances of getting married. So I don't know what to do. I mean, it almost sounds like eating disorders or something. Well, okay. We're going to put a pin in that. Okay. So remember that like, again, the best thing that a woman can do and be is get married and have babies. And, and, you know, who wants to get married to a tired, moody, skinny, pale chick (laughs) who can't get pregnant because she's not having her period. Yeah. The reality is, is that women with chlorosis were probably suffering from disordered eating, Mm -hmm. anemia, 
yeah. hormonal balances, anxiety, depression, right? Any of those things. Yeah. No. Yeah. The pale skin and everything that does seem like could be anemia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The diagnosis and treatment were tied for both hysteria and chlorosis were tied to societal constructs. So, like hysteria, the solution to chlorosis was getting married having sex within marriage and getting pregnant so that these women could fulfill their purpose as wives and mothers. Mm -hmm. I I think that's another interesting thing too, about both diseases is that it's like you are getting sick because there is a thing lacking in your life. And that thing that is lacking is you fulfilling the role that we have decided is your role in society. So one thing that just makes me think of just kind of as a sidebar is this Mm -hmm. is the Victorian era. You said Mm -hmm. this is like the rise of the popularity of vampire fiction from like, I mean, I talked about it in the first episode, you know, mm-hmm. the, the vampire novel, Lord yeah. Ruffin, that then inspired Dracula, which came yeah. at like the end of the Victorian era. And like all of these symptoms that you're saying of the, what, what is it called? The not hysterical chlorosis chlorosis are like, mm-hmm. these are all the symptoms that a woman who's being haunted by a vampire count is like in all these Gothic stories is yeah. experiencing. So just interesting seeing how like this stuff bleeds down into pop yeah. culture. Yeah. And thinking like, oh, she's got some, you know, she's, she's being haunted by this vampire. She has this like mysterious Mm -hmm. disease instead of like, get that bitch a steak. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, fuck. Or maybe just leave her the fuck alone. Yeah. Leave her alone. God bless. All women have ever wanted is to be left the fuck alone and nobody can do it. (laughs) Okay. So the Victorians get wet and wild. Okay. Yeah. Hydrotherapy has been around, you know, forever. People have been using like healing baths and, and that kind of stuff since the Romans were doing it. Everybody's doing it. But the Victorians really, really love to treat stuff with water. Mm-hmm. Um, around this time, European and American spas start offering douches to treat hysteria. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I say a douche because... The illustrations <laughs> appear. It's a woman in a chair and she's naked, of course, but she's in a chair and it, they are aiming what looks to be a fire hose, mm-hmm. at her pelvis. Yeah. And I'm like, I mean, I hope it wasn't a fire hose because it's like they were just like, and yeah. just like, ah, um, yeah, that seems a bit much. It seems a bit much. A writer in 1909 claimed there was no better weapon in fighting hysteria, said its effects were, quote, impossible to describe, experienced, it is never forgotten. One, how pervy is that shit? Yeah. And two, I was going to say any woman, but really, I mean, maybe this is everybody. Anybody who was ever, who ever had access to a jacuzzi tub when they were little and like sat in front of the jets because mm-hmm. it feels good. Yeah. Like, again, these women are just getting off and everybody's like, <laughs> you're cured. And then they're like, how beautiful it is to see her free from evil. And she's yeah. like, no, I'm, I'm just getting off. Everybody relax, yeah. go home. So Victorian doctors, unsurprisingly, start to com- <laughs> start to complain that the pelvic massage needed to bring about hysterical paroxysms is just too hard. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just such a like, it's <laughs> Just too hard. Like, that's such a, like, dude response. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, you're the one who decided that, like, why? Okay, we're going to get to that in a sec. Okay, so it's just too hard, and they're worried that even though they don't get any kind of sexual titillation or gratification from pelvic massage, that women will begin to equate it with sex. And I mean, guys, like, duh. 
Yeah. They're so worried about it that doctors during the time even begin advocating causing discomfort or even pain to their patients so that they won't equate it with sex. Okay. Yeah. So these Victorian doctors are like, eh, this is uncomfortable and I'm getting carpal tunnel. <laughs> so they look to technology to give them a hand. Mm-hmm. Right? Here, if you want to drop in a little bit of the Beach Boys good vibrations, that would be appropriate. So in 1869, a man by the name of George Taylor, I think he's the doctor, who knows, patents the first steam-powered vibrator. There had, however, been a hand-cranked model as early as 1734. Oh I'm just I'm just imagining like those hand-crank like egg the beaters. beaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And it's a Yeah, that's uh, does not sound yeah. comfortable to me. So Taylor's contraption was named the manipulator and it required an engine that was so big it had to actually live in it. Like the engine had its own room uh, Okay. and it needed constant shoveling of coal. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> and the actual vibrator was an orb. There was a, it was a vibrating orb that poked out of a hole in a big table. I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I've seen pictures of it and I'm like, did she like squat on it? Yeah. Did she just like scooch up on it? Like, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Taylor warned that women should always be supervised to prevent, get this, overindulgence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. What an a-hole. In 1882, a man named Joseph Granville invents the first portable electromechanical vibrator. And that had an easy breezy 40 pound battery that you just <laughs> had to carry around I mean, with you. Hey man, it's progress, you know? It is, I mean, for, yeah, it's a bit like, you know, the, the computers that took up a city block down to like one right, room. Right, had the power of like a pocket calculator, right. <laughs> And he actually, so Joseph Granville invents this like portable electromechanical vibrator and everybody's like super cool. Now we can cart this around and treat women in their homes Mm -hmm. and all that good stuff. But Granville is actually pissed about all of this because he invented it to be a massager for like skeletal muscles for Hmm. men. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was like, no, it's a massager. And doctors were like, uh, no, we're using this to pelvic massage these women. The first in a long tradition of like muscle massagers being reappropriated for 100%. Purposes. 100%. Like I said, the other doctors didn't care that it wasn't uh, meant for that purpose because it brought treatment time down from an hour to five minutes. Mm-hmm. Get them in, get them out. Yeah. Get them in, get them out. Come on. We're, we're burning daylight here. <laughs> in 1885, Sigmund Freud gets in on the game and he mm-hmm. declares that hysteria is actually the psychological effects of repressed childhood trauma. Freud had studied his friends, Joseph Brewer's notes treating Anna O. That was a a pseudonym. Her real name was Bertha Pappenheim. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So Joseph Brewer was treating Bertha Pappenheim for hysteria. And based on that case study and the notes and everything, Freud and Brewer wrote about Anna's case in their book, Studies on Hysteria. Her treatment, which utilized uh, what was called at the time, the talking cure, pretty much much marked the beginning of psychoanalysis. Yeah. So Freud There's treated- There's a movie about this, actually. Maybe. I thought so. Too. Are you thinking about the one with Kira Knightley? Yeah, it's a David Cronenberg movie. Yes, I thought so too, but that is young and somebody else. Oh, okay. 
Was yeah, like, I I thought I was up. like, what the fuck is that? But it was all like, oh, you know, okay. um, I think very similar subject matter. So Freud treated hysteria with hypnosis, believing that the patient must relive her traumatic experiences through imagination in its most vivid form. Mm. Freud's theories on hysteria evolved over time, like as he was studying this. And there's a lot of issues with Freud. Yeah. Um, but his belief in the development of his ideas on this is actually kind of interesting because like I said, they evolved over time to the point where he actually was like, hey, hysteria isn't actually something that is only specific to women. Men can suffer from hysteria. I am actually, mm -hmm, I am actually suffering from hysteria because of all the time that I have spent studying hysteria. Interesting. I mean, the thing about Freud is just like, he was wrong about a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. He was like at least nudging us in the right direction on a lot of things. He was Mm -hmm. the first to start thinking in some ways that are like, we're actually more constructive. He just like a lot of his conclusions were kind of suspect now, but yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that it's like, wait, what, (laughs) you know, like that women had, I'm not going to be able to think of it, but we were, we were basically jealous at the lack of our own penis. Oh, the the penis envy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That we don't have it. And you know, yeah. I mean, I mean, one thing about Freud is he did boil everything down to sex. (laughs) He really did. He really, really did. So Freud is over there trying to like treat the root causes of Mm -hmm. these ailments and the rest of the world is like more hysterical paroxysms. Yeah. So that vibrating table (laughs) and that or the 40 pound battery portable one. So with people bringing these vibrators into their homes, it leaves the door open for other contraptions like jolting chairs, electric rockers and saddle machines, Mm -hmm. which claim to not just cure hysteria but also stuff like gout and obesity so you just like kind of like rock it out of you i mean Um, i feel like they still have things like that in the gym today so (laughs) the weird thing with the belt that like yeah yeah, Yeah, shakes you up yeah doctors aren't too keen on women being able to use vibrators by themselves in their own homes and it's actually because they're like you could buy a vibrator for like five dollars but they wanted you to pay the three to four dollars a visit for them to come and do it yeah you know, have an economic incentive here. 100%. And at this time, like, yes, there is the portable one, but most doctors are wielding these like massive machines, like the <laughs> one that was called the Chattanooga. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Which guys, like the marketing on these is just uh, abysmal, <laughs> but it had wheels. Like it was like, like you rolled it in and it stood five feet tall. And Oof. I'm thinking, I'm just thinking about these women and they're like, I'm suffering from all this stuff and the doctor's like i have the cure and then he's like rolling his massive chattanooga machine down the street and it's like big fucking like like, vibrating robot thing yeah and then everybody knows that you have hysteria like yeah how embarrassing um (laughs) vibrators were actually the fifth electrical device to come into homes Hmm. first it was the sewing machine and that was followed by the fan the toaster the tea kettle and the vibrator I'm surprised the tea kettle beat it. It seems like electric tea kettles always feel like a fairly recent development it to me, does? but apparently not. <laughs> apparently not, yeah. Okay. And they could be ordered from catalogs like Sears and Roebuck. These ads would often declare things like, quote, no modern home is complete without one. Mm-hmm. By the early 1900s, vibrators are being sold as the cure-alls for everything from hysteria to beauty issues with ads like, all the pleasures of youth will throb within you. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> That's real tempting to make that our... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the pleasures of youth will throb within you. Yeah, yeah. It's I read that and I was like, still nobody was like, this is some pervy yeah. shit. Yeah. It wasn't until the 1920s when vibrators start showing up in porn mm-hmm. that everybody is like, <laughs> like okay. the jig is finally up. <laughs> no one can say that vibrators, pelvic massage, hysterical paroxysms, all of that stuff that they are anything but sexual. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're not in good shape when it shows up in porn. Yeah. <laughs> like if it is a dis- if it is a decidedly unsexual thing, you're in trouble when it shows up in porn. So during the depression and into World War II, sales of electric devices like the vibrator drop, especially during the war, all of the metal is being used for the war effort. And apparently, yeah. allegedly, our troops didn't need vibrators. <laughs> so <laughs> production went down until around 1950. Okay. And that's when vibrators get remarketed as spot reducers. Think of Peggy's rejuvenator on Mad Men. Uh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the weird plastic underwear that she puts. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the 1950s also saw the publishing of the Kinsey Report mm-hmm. and like sex therapy starts to become a thing. During the 60s and 70s, vibrators start getting attention from feminists who are reclaiming the devices as tools of their sexuality. And in 1973, Betty Dodson, who was the author of The Joy of Sex, reintroduces the vibrator at the national organization. Is it for women of women? I think it's for women. At their sexuality conference as a symbol of sexual empowerment. Here's an interesting thing, though. Vibrators were only advertised in magazines like Popular Mechanics and Technology World because women weren't allowed in the sex shops that sold them. So men were usually the ones doing the buying. Mm -hmm. As recently as 2000, magazines like Glamour and Vogue wouldn't allow advertisements for vibrators because they didn't want to be seen as endorsing female masturbation. They will, however, allow ads for Viagra. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, but it does surprise me you know Mm -hmm. it's like that seems awful recent but i remember 2000 it's like yeah we were still real weird about this stuff back then yeah and we're not now but i think maybe less weird well i was like what the hell and thinking like i mean vogue not so much vogue has been a bit more of like a fashion magazine but magazines like glamour and cosmo like they wrote about sex all the time all the time and as I was thinking about this, yeah. I was thinking about this and I was like, they were writing about sex. They were not touching masturbation. Well, and I, not that I spent a ton of time reading Vogue and Cosmo, but like, it seems like it was a lot of like the sex talk in those magazines was like how to please your man kind of stuff. Very much. Yeah. A Dr. Rachel Maines, who's a famed sex historian and author of the technology of orgasm had this to say about those magazines, quote, it's heteronormativity where the only real sex is penetration of the vagina by the penis to male orgasm and everything else is just fooling around, mm-hmm. end quote. In 1980, the American Psychology Association renames hysterical neurosis conversion type to conversion disorder. Conversion disorder is neurological symptoms that can't be explained medically. And hysteria as a woman's disorder starts to fall out of fashion. This is 1980. Yeah. This is I mean, that's not seems, that long ago. That seems awful late. It seems really for the light bulb to be going off. Right. It no longer exists like at all as a medical diagnosis. I think, you know, there was still a time where they were like, 
you know, it's kind of whatever, no longer exists at all as a medical diagnosis. But the thinking, especially around the Victorian age, had a huge impact on how the medical field and its professionals interact with women. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hysteria and all of its cures are just one example in a long line of ways that unethical medical practices have been used on women. To date, women's pain is frequently not taken seriously by some Mm -hmm. medical professionals, by a lot of medical professionals, and is dismissed as psychological rather than physical, putting the blame for women's pain or discomfort on our unstable and overly dramatic natures. To highlight this, to this day, it takes a woman an average of eight years to get a diagnosis for endometriosis, which endometriosis, which is a painful and disruptive and potentially dangerous disorder. Mm-hmm. It is also used even still as a tool of dismissal and exemption from female authority in many industries. Women are too emotional to be president, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. They're too yep. emotional to be in the army, you know, that kind of shit. In 2003, a federal appeals court in Texas ruled that an old law that was on the book saying that it was illegal to sell or promote obscene devices and was, which was punishable by up to two years in jail violated wow. the 14th amendment's right to privacy. Yeah, I would think. In 2009, the Supreme court in Alabama upheld the 1998 anti-obscenity act, which criminalized the sale of sex toys. Today, Alabama is the only state in the country where selling sex toys, including vibrators is outlawed. Yeah. I mean, you know, Alabama, Alabama. Yeah. Apparently Alabama got real butt hurt about this, that everybody was like, oh, Alabama's real lame. Yeah. <laughs> so they stopped enforcing it. It's now one of those, it's one of those things where it's illegal to sell them, but not buy them unless you're buying more than five. And it was never oh, specified geez. if it was like five of the same, five devices. Guys, like, like just, could you, yeah. So just repeal the fucking law. No, they won't. The the law also includes exceptions for vibrators bought for, quote, bona fide medical, scientific, educational, legislative, judicial, or law enforcement purposes. Wait, what? Yeah. So, okay. Okay. (laughs) Medical, scientific, educational. Cool. Legislative, judicial, or law enforcement purposes? Doesn't make any fucking sense. What are you doing with them? What is anybody in any of those fields doing with vibrators uh, or sex toys? In an official capacity. In an official capacity. Yeah. Uh, Creepy. Alabama? creepy. Um, Get your shit together. So at this point, sex shops in Alabama just ask customers to fill out an anonymous form promising that the purchase is only for health-related reasons. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also in 2009, a study was released that analyzed vibrator usage of the over 2000 women who participated 52.5% claimed to have used a vibrator. The same study found out that 45% of men had also used a vibrator and Mm. that people who use them had happier sex lives and were more responsible about their sexual health. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead. And if, if you don't mind, Scotty, I'm going to go ahead and take an official position on this and state that the weirdest thing podcast enthusiastically supports the use of sex toys in a healthy exploration of your own sexuality. <laughs> I, I like that you felt like you had to clear that with me. <laughs> 
I just didn't want you to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, what I if I was? Support that. What if I was like, no, I'm moving to Alabama. <laughs> you just hear my headphones drop. Um, <laughs> and then just like the boop of like a dead signal, even though there's no way that can happen here. <laughs> One last thing. There are a lot of symptoms of hysteria that, that were probably due to a whole bunch of other things, few that are actually specific to women. Aside from the stuff that was just women acting differently from what society considered normal, these women could have been suffering from brain tumors, multiple sclerosis, seizure disorders, mm-hmm. epilepsy, venereal diseases, anxiety, depression, PTSD, PMS, PMDD, schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, conversion disorder, and panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And none of them were getting treated for the thing that was actually wrong with them. Right. Well, I mean, like, as you were describing the symptoms, I was thinking of things like multiple sclerosis and mm-hmm. uh, Parkinson's disease, epilepsy. I mean, yeah. even like, I mean, it's just fascinating thinking about it because like even like i mean amelia knows this like last year last summer i was having all sorts of weird medical symptoms that i didn't understand like i was having chest pains mm-hmm. I was having like tingling and stuff in all of my like limbs and i was getting kind of freaked out about it and it turned out it was just like my thyroid was all fucked up yeah but i'm just thinking about all the women in the 1600s or whatever who mm-hmm. were- yeah who were just like can i like can i just get some help for this an interesting rabbit hole to fall down into is the history of ptsd it was something that took a long time to get figured out. And, you know, you'll hear things about like shell shock when soldiers would come back from, and I think that was around World War One and World War Two. I don't yeah. know what they referred to it as beforehand. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think the term originated with World War One and then became very like associated with World War Two. Yeah. Yeah. But before that, there was something called, I think it was called like train spine. Hmm. And it was essentially PTSD from people who'd been in train wrecks. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, that makes yeah. Sense. Yeah. But uh, so it's, that's a very interesting rabbit hole to fall down real fast. I'm just going to end with a little PSA. You heard me mention PMDD in mm-hmm. the list of symptoms. And I'm just going to do a little quick little blurb about that. PMDD stands for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And it is a disorder that affects two to 6% of all menstruating people. Mm-hmm. PMDD symptoms can be severe and debilitating affecting daily life and threatening an individual's mental well-being. It requires treatment. (laughs) I'm just Mm going to repeat that. It requires treatment and symptoms can include, but are not limited to severe fatigue, irritability, nervousness, depression, anxiety, emotional sensitivity, difficulty, concentrating, heart palpitations, paranoia, issues with self-image, coordination difficulties, and forgetfulness. Part of the reason that I'm bringing this up is that those with PMDD are at a higher risk of suicide with rates of suicidal thoughts, 2.8 times higher suicidal planning 4.15 times higher and suicide attempts 3.3 times higher than people who have not been diagnosed with PMDD. Scotty knows this. The reason that I'm talking about this and the like the reason I want to put some attention on it is because I got diagnosed with PMDD last year Mm -hmm. um, and it has been a bit of a roller coaster. It took me a while to like see the pattern and it took me a while to figure out that I was having a really hard time around my period. And just to, just to understand that, like, it wasn't normal that I didn't have to live with this, that there was something going on and that I needed to get some attention for it. Um, it's a very weird thing because it only comes in the week or two before your period. And then it usually 
stops a couple of days into your period. So it's, it's just a very, it's a thing that can kind of set you off balance. So if anyone out there is experiencing like what they think are PMS symptoms that seem disproportionate, this is just me saying that you have every right to talk to your doctor about what you're experiencing because it might not just be PMS. And, and, uh, and don't let them be dismissive of it. Cause like mm-hmm. having watched you go through this, mm-hmm. like it was, I mean, there were moments that were like scary just to watch. Mm-hmm. Cause like, I didn't know what was going on, but what I remember you talking about it, but kind of around the time and maybe before you got diagnosed as you were sort of operating under the assumption that it was just really bad PMS. And so I think yeah. there's lots of women out there who like I, had, I, you know, I'm obviously I'm a dude, but I had never heard of PMDD before you talked about it. Yeah. Um. So I just think it's like, there's a lot of women out there who are experiencing this and they're either being dismissed by the people close to them or by themselves just saying, well, it's just PMS, like just PMS, quote unquote. Yeah. They're being dismissed by their doctors, et cetera. It's like, if, if yeah. you feel like this is a, a real thing that you need to examine, like push it you know, Mm -hmm. yeah. don't let anyone just like blow you off. And just before, when I said it requires treatment, I thankfully had a great doctor who I told my symptoms to, and she was immediately like, yep, I would be willing to bet that this is it. And like, the reason I bring it up is because, you know, like I said, it can be threatening to people's well-being, like their mental well-being. A lot of people who have PMDD actually get put on antidepressants and they get put on medication because there are non-medical ways that you can alleviate the symptoms, but- managing it sort of requires just some extra help. So if it's something, yeah, that you, that if you think that you're being hit a little bit harder every month with stuff and it's not just kind of the usual like fatigue, but it's depressive episodes and lack of interest in things and stuff like that, then like talk to your doctor. If you want to learn more, PMDD is actually something that you can Google. Most of the information out there is pretty damn good, but I will have Scotty include the link for the PMDD page on the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office on Women's Health. The yeah. link for the website in the show notes. Yeah. All right. That's it. Yay, lady yeah. business. Yay, vibrators. Um, <laughs> Yay, and, and vibrators. In case it wasn't clear, I 100% do endorse the idea that like these. No, yes. your tacit silence was. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're all for like healthy and safe like sexual practices and anything that, yes anything that makes you happy where nobody is getting hurt fucking go to town man yeah as long as both parties are uh enthusiastic consenting adults mm-hmm. adults yeah let's go for emphasize it. that adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Ad- yeah ad- adults adults right. <laughs> yeah then go for it also consenting also enthusiastic yeah all all of the above all of yeah the above. all of the above All right. Well, I am going to tell the story. Uh, and, th- and by the way, this one, hopefully it's not going to be too long. There's like a lot to this oh. story. <laughs> this Oops, is okay. one of those. This is one of those stories that is like, once you start reading up on it, it is just endless fucking rabbit holes that you can fall down forever. So I tried to kind of consolidate it as best I could. But this is the story of the mad monk, Grigory Rasputin. Yes. And his, his uh, strange life and very strange death. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for 
this just a little bit of like context to understand kind of the world that Rasputin was in. We need to talk about Russia under the czars. Okay. So what is a czar? And it's spelled, you usually see it spelled a couple different ways. It's either T-S-A-R or C-Z-A-R. Okay. Basically what it means is emperor of all Russia. Um, It's it's a term that goes back to the Great Northern War of the early 1700s, where essentially like a Russian coalition, it sounds like it was a bunch of different nations, but all sort of under the banner of Russia, mm-hmm. uh, went to war against the Swedish Empire for control of Central and Eastern Europe. Really? Yeah. And I and I was, I was like, Swedish Empire? I've never, I don't even yeah. know about that. But then I was like, I'm, don't go down that rabbit hole. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Bypass it, come, like bookmark <laughs> I, it, come I, back I, to I it. I know essentially nothing about the Swedish Empire. <laughs> okay. All right. So. Um, I won't uh, ask any questions. The Swedes, they had an empire and the Russians went to war with them. So the first czar of Russia was Peter the first. He okay. ruled Russia from 1682 to 1721. And he was the first of the Romanov dynasty. Mm. The Romanovs are, of course, most associated with being... There were some other czars that popped in from other families, and I think because there were some, like, internal conflicts and stuff. But again, I was like, don't go down those rabbit holes. So, But, you know, the vast majority of czars all came from this Romanov family. And they were the second reigning monarchical dynasty of Russia. Okay. Now, I think to understand about the czars, when we're talking about, like, a monarchy, we're not talking, like, constitutional monarchy, like what the UK has. Okay. Where it's, like, the royal family is, like, the heads of state. But really, the government is left to parliament and the prime minister and stuff. I mean, we're talking about, from what I read, this is this is more like the Iron Throne version of a monarchy. Like, oh. absolute power. And in fact, and this went up into, obviously, the 20th century, which we're going to talk about. There was a 1906 revision of the Russian constitution that actually codified the czar as being, quote, the emperor of all Russia is an autocratic and unrestricted monarch. To obey his supreme authority, not only out of fear, but out of conscience as well, God himself commands. Wow. This, this is like power vested from God into this. Yeah, yeah. So oh, that makes me very nervous. Yeah. Well, there's a reason why the czars got overthrown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so the czar held basically absolute power in the Russian empire. And this included over religious and church matters. So he was both the head of state and the head of the church. Kind of like that idea. The kings and queens of England were the head of state and also like the head of the Anglican church. It's kind of the same. Right. So the common metaphor that people use was that the czar was the father of all the Russian people and all the people were his children. This attitude was so prevalent that they even included it in teachings of the Russian Orthodox Church. So again, like oh. this is the Iron Throne. This is Westeros. <laughs> wow. Um, but with guns. So, But know, with that, guns. <laughs> that's fine. So let's talk about the last czar of okay. Russia. Nicholas II Romanov. Mm-hmm. So he's been sanctified by the Russian Orthodox Church as St. Nicholas the Passion Bearer, mm-hmm. he reigned from 1894 until 1917 when he was essentially forced to abdicate during the Russian Revolution. Okay. While he was czar, he did institute like a number of reforms. So he was actually very good on things like increasing literacy, increasing civil liberties, uh, modernizing the Russian infrastructure. Okay. So there were like things he was doing that were actually, like I think there's this kind of idea out there that Nicholas Two was just this totally inept, incompetent ruler inbred through the centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, you know, he did some good things. But 
while he was doing those good things, he was also losing oh. two wars. Okay. <laughs> the Russo-Japanese War, which lasted from 1904 to 1905. And then basically, they didn't really lose World War One, but they got involved on the side of the Allies during World War One, And then the Russian Revolution happened and they were they basically had to pull out of World War. Oh, okay. And while all this was happening, he was tightening down on his own autocratic control. So even though he was kind of increasing civil liberties and modernizing the infrastructure, when it came to who was in power, like he was pulling power away from the Duma, which was like their parliament mm. and centralizing it all within himself, which was creating all sorts of unrest. Yeah. So, you know, this is obviously during the rise of socialism, you know, Marxism. He attempted to violently suppress the rising socialist movement. He also violently suppressed the 1905 Russian Revolution. So there was a revolution before the Russian Revolution, essentially. They called this the first revolution. It was a wave of political and social unrest. Uh, It grew out of the Russian defeat during the Russo-Japanese War. And then as well as just general dissatisfaction with the aristocracy, with the czar's absolute power, with the class divide just you know people were people were not having it anymore czarist forces sort of quote won this first revolution but the dissatisfaction remained and this and the loss of these wars really weakened his hold on power and this is kind of what set the stage for the bolshevik revolution of 1917 which is of course the birth of the soviet union Mm -hmm. vladimir lenin himself called this first revolution he called it the quote great dress rehearsal Yeah. (laughs) So, so of course, Nicholas ultimately had to abdicate the throne. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And this ended the Romanov dynasty. Now let's talk about his family. Okay. So he was married to Alexandria Fyodorovna. She was German born and that's going to be important. Okay. Uh, So she was not Russian. She was noted to be very beautiful. She was born at the new palace in Darmstadt, Germany. She was the sixth child and fourth daughter of Louis IV, Grand Duke of Hesse and his wife, Princess Alice of England. So she was actually the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. Oh, okay. And through that line, through Queen Victoria, she was a carrier of the gene that causes hemophilia. Um, So, you know, when you talk about, I'll talk about him in a second, but Alexei, who was the heir apparent Mm -hmm. in his hemophilia, again, I think there's this sort of meme, this idea that, well, it was all the inbreeding. Mm-hmm. had something to do with it but really it was carried through her line it was you know from queen victoria her line down did know. queen victoria have hemophiliac I children don't believe i'm not sure about that but i do know that like i think other people in her family did have hemophilia uh-huh i'm not i'm not sure how much it mm-hmm. how persistent it was in like the british royal family but it was sort of throughout a lot of royal families throughout Europe. And yep. it really was, it was probably less the inbreeding and more that there were only a few families that were kind of constantly intermarrying. And so one of these royal families was just spreading this gene for hemophilia kind of throughout. Right. The Which is like good on you guys. Cause you guys were real weird about that gene pool and yeah. <laughs> that's what you fucking and got. Here's what you get. Now she and Nicholas, the czar, they met at a wedding when he was 20 and she was 16 and they kind of fell for each other right away. Like, what's kind of interesting is that most of these marriages were like political alliances and this was as well but they were actually very they deeply cared for each other she was reluctant at first to marry him because she was raised a lutheran and she didn't want to leave her church Mm. Um, but when she married him she did convert and join the russian orthodox church 
Okay. Their children were the Grand Duchess Olga Nikolaevna. And by the way, this whole thing is going to be me badly pronouncing a lot of Russian names. Just do your um, best. <laughs> and then uh, she was born in 1895. So she was the oldest child. Grand Duchess Tatiana Nikolaevna, 1897. Grand Duchess Maria Nikolaevna, born in 1899. The Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaevna, 1901. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the famous Anastasia. Mm-hmm. You know, all, I almost was like tempted to go down the rabbit holes of like all the theories of her having survived the assassination oh, yeah. of her family. And, but yep. I, I didn't. So maybe, maybe we'll hold that for another episode. Mm-hmm. And then of course, Zarevich, which means heir apparent, Alexei Nikol- Nikolaevich. He was born 1904. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to just backtrack a little bit. My sources for this. Oh, right. Wikipedia, as always. Mm-hmm. Um, and then an article from Smithsonian Magazine by a woman named Carolyn Harris. It's called The Murder of Rasputin 100 Years Later. This is from mm. December 27th, 2016. And then a book, Rasputin, Faith, Power, in the Twilight of the Romanons by Douglas Smith. And I okay. read big chunks. I haven't finished the book. I read big chunks of that book. It's real fucking interesting. So if you're into this subject at all, I, I do recommend that book. Can, what was the name of the book again? It is Rasputin, Faith, Power, in the Twilight of the Romanovs. Mm. The author is Douglas Smith. Okay. That's sort of the history of the czars and the current royal family, current of that time period royal family. Now let's talk about Gregory Rasputin. Let's do it. So Rasputin was born on January 21st, 1869. He was a peasant. He was born in the tiny village of Pokroskoye. Pope, something like that. You're doing um, your best. <laughs> I feel like, I'm sorry. I feel like that should just be the name of our podcast is just doing, do your best. Just do your best. <laughs> Pokroskoye in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Um, so not a whole lot is known about his family. And in fact, there is a quote that basically was like, see if I can find it here. This Douglas Smith, he says, Rasputin's youth and early adulthood are a quote, black hole about which we know almost nothing. Wow. So not much is known about his family, but his father's name was Yefim. He was a peasant farmer and a church elder in this Pokrovskoya. Um, He also worked as a courier. He ferried people and goods like around these like different Russian towns. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of theories about the name Rasputin and where Mm. this comes from. Mm -hmm. So here's a quote. This is from that Douglas Smith book. He says, many have tried to link it to the Russian word Rasputnik, which means a reprobate or a Rasputnishat, which means to behave with wanton debauchery. As if Rasputin's name either derived from his moral depravity or was later given to him due to his wicked fame. The origins, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> the origins of the name are obscure. If it indeed started with an ancestor who was a Rasputinic, then Rasputin's mm-hmm. family was far from unusual given how many people in Siberia bore that name. Okay. But there are other more likely sources. Rasputa or Rasputin mean crossroads and long ago these places were seen as the haunt of evil spirits and perhaps the name was given to persons believed to be in contact with such forces Mm. so there's lots about i mean there's just so much like myth making about rasputin is just like (sighs) evil genius yeah evil like demonic force Right, like predetermined. Right, and one of the things that has led into this myth of him is that Yefim and his wife, they had eight children total, maybe nine. I read somewhere that there was maybe a ninth, like, younger girl. Mm -hmm. Um, But of the known eight children, all of them died in infancy or early childhood, except for Gregory Rasputin. He was the only one to survive. 
Yeah. Okay. Maybe he, maybe he was a little, <laughs> I mean, there's some stuff in here where it's like, like normally where I go into these things and I end up debunking a lot of stuff with Rasputin. I'm like, right. I don't know. This guy was a little scary. Um, <laughs> is Rasputin going to end up on the weirdest thing? Believability scale. I mean, yeah, probably. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm I haven't decided yet where he falls, but I'll decide okay. by the end of this episode. Okay. <laughs> so like I said, you know, not much is known about his youth and early adulthood. And because of this, people have like filled in the blanks with all sorts of fabrications and myths and, right. you know, about him coming from a family of devil worshipers and all sorts of stuff. Now, one thing that is generally agreed upon is that Rasputin, he was like most peasants. He was illiterate until his kind of early adulthood when he finally learned to read. He was also like local records show that he was also kind of a delinquent as a youth. Mm. So he'd been mm -hmm. arrested a few times for like petty thefts, drinking, like public intoxication, disrespecting local authorities, etc. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, a, like part of the myth is that he was this sort of criminal, like before he sort of took on the mantle of being a man of God. But really it was like, he was just into like petty shit. Like there's no evidence he was ever really in trouble for anything particularly serious. Okay. Um, he traveled to to the city of Abalakin, which is in Western Siberia in 1886. And while he was there, he met and courted a peasant girl named Praskovia Dubrovina. They married in uh, 1887 and then they moved back to Pokrovskoy, whatever his hometown, whatever his hometown. <laughs> <laughs> I get sick Sorry. of saying it and it pops up like a hundred million more times. Okay. Sorry. You were just like, fuck this fuck town's this. name. I, yeah. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> doing the best I can, people. All right. So they moved back to this town uh, and they had seven children. Only three survived into adulthood. Mm. And in fact, his daughter, Maria, wrote three memoirs of her father's life and then died in 1977 at the age of 79. And that really kind of hit me because I don't know, there's something about when you think about like Rasputin, like it's like, it seems like so long ago, like almost like you're talking about like Merlin or King Arthur. I was just thinking that while you were saying that and, yeah. you know, and then you were saying some of these dates and I'm like, no, there's no way. I mean, it was way before that. His daughter, I looked up, she died. Rasputin's daughter died. Uh -huh. Just a little more than a month before I was born. <laughs> That's, so, did, are there any grandchildren? Probably. I didn't dig that deep. I think she had family and stuff. So I think there are like Rasputins out there today. Uh, um, yeah. What? Sorry. What president is it that has a living? Is it Polk that has a living grandson? Because he, I, it's something like he had his last child when he was like in his late seventies. And then that child had a child when he was in his, no, like, it's, when, it's not Polk. Is it Tyler? That might be, I, I don't, I'm talking like I fucking know, but I know, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And I mean, it same like somewhat of a similar thing that you're like, no, 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 no. That's not possible. I mean, um, my, my grandpa, like this is a total sidebar, but my grandpa was born 1908 in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. uh, on the non-Jewish side of the family, very much like Oki Farm Boy. He told me at one point, like he knew people that fought in the Civil War. Like they were all old men by the time he could remember anything. But like he knew like Civil War veterans. Like, that's, that's fucking crazy. Crazy. Um, but anyway, so. Okay. Yes, continue. Uh, he married this woman, Praskovia Dubrovo, Dubrovina. <laughs> she ended up staying behind in the hometown that I'm not going to say the name of anymore mm -hmm. uh, for the rest of her life and even past his death. And even though he was like off doing his Rasputin thing, mm -hmm. she stayed very devoted to him for her entire life. He didn't show much of the same to her. And we'll get to that. <sighs> So around at some point, at some yeah. point, I'm just saying, I'm sorry again. No, sorry. you know what? I'm not sorry. Um, 
we interrupt each other all the fucking time, but at some point we need to do some kind of an actual like love story on here because there's just, so, I mean, unfortunately history is just so full of like devoted partners being shit upon by their I mean, not so devoted partners. I mean, I did one, Stephen King and his wife. Yeah, but that's pretty current. Yeah, we, we need to go like back in time. Yeah. Because I think other than Stephen King, the closest I've come is Mary Shelley and Piercy Shelley. And even though there's some creepiness involved there. So. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little bit like, of weirdness. Ditching pregnant wives and things. Yeah. So. And then Mary <laughs> Shelley was like, oh, so sad about Percy. What is up, Washington Irving? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she, she was like still in her morning wear and she was like, what is up? I mean, good for her. Good for her. You know, good for her. So around 1897, Rasputin, he started to become interested in religion. And so this time period is interesting. Like in this country, we talk about something, I think it's called the Great Awakening that happened in like the early uh, 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, where it was all these splinter religions started popping up Mm. and it really like a lot of people trace back to like the evangelical Pentecostal nature of like a lot of American Christianity Mm -hmm. it goes back to this great awakening time period and then there are other I mean things like the Mormon church kind of grew out of this time period you know Mm Russia was going through, it sounds like kind of a similar thing around this time. There was a lot of like sex and break off sex of the Orthodox church and these like kind of village folk traditions Mm -hmm. rising up. And so he was kind of part of all of this around when he started becoming interested in religion himself. And so for some reason, no one knows exactly why he ended up leaving his wife and family in 1897 to go on this like pilgrimage it's not clear why he left i did read somewhere that there's a theory that he was running away because he was about to be punished for stealing a horse like i don't think there's any like records of that okay um others have said he was experiencing visions of either the virgin mary or of saint simeon of vercorturi or that he was like inspired by a young theological student who was like traveling to his village but either way he like took off he was 28 years old he had an infant son his wife was pregnant and he just hit the road went on this pilgrimage cast off all aspects of his old life so in the douglas smith book he says like this is a sign of someone who's in some sort of crisis mm. spiritual emotional mental mm-hmm. something was going on with Rasputin. he ended up visiting the monastery at verkorturi that year and was quote profoundly humbled by his encounter with a church elder named makari He stayed at the monastery for several months, and it's believed that that's where he learned how to read and write. But he became very disillusioned, and he left, and he accused the monks of being homosexuals and saying that the monastic life was, quote, coercive. So Wow. Reading between the lines there, I'm like, something happened at that monastery. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone knows for sure. So he arrived back in his hometown, and when he came back, he had, at this point, become very disheveled. He was sort of turning into the Rasputin, we all know, with like the big beard and the stringy hair mm-hmm. it's sworn off alcohol and he was like known to be like a drinker before mm. this but he had sworn off alcohol had become a vegetarian and then he was like praying and singing all the time um, so yeah lame just kidding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean he's he's like in the grip of something yeah yeah there is there's a lot going on there right i mean it just seems like a massive shift in his personality yeah at this point he spent several years as a quote stranic which means a holy wanderer and so he would leave his family for like months or even years at the time to like wander the countryside and he would like visit holy sites and preach they think that in 1900 he even made it as far as mount athos down in greece 
which is considered like a center of like orthodox church monastic life Mm -hmm. um and then there's by the way like this is a total sidebar but there's a whole other rabbit hole you can go down about the schism between the catholic church and the orthodox church and like what the roots of that are it's it that's that's pretty fascinating in and of itself not gonna get into it i have i've actually always like wondered what that is about but okay cool. i mean i mean just very short answer is that it a lot of it is the splitting of the roman empire into the eastern and western Uh, but yeah Okay. You know, you had the Western Roman Empire, which was still centered in Rome and then kind of collapsed pretty fucking quickly. And then you mm-hmm. had the Byzantine Empire, which was the Eastern Roman Empire that lasted until they were kind of conquered by the Ottomans. But then the Ottomans lasted until World War One. But anyway, so as he was doing these wanderings, he began developing like a very small circle of followers. So at this stage, most were family members and then other peasants around his hometown. His family was still living with his father at the time. So he built like a makeshift chapel in his father's root cellar. And then he and his followers would hold secret prayer meetings there. And this sparked all sorts of suspicion. Mm-hmm. Rumors started flying around that he was like having his female followers ritually wash him before the meetings. And this is a theme that continues with Rasputin. And no one really, I don't think anyone really knows how true any of this is, mm-hmm. but stories of him engaging in inappropriate sexual contact with his female followers just follow him up through the Romanovs. There's a lot about Rasputin that is like, this is just straight up. It's a cult. Like, it's a it's typical. Culty cult yeah you know yeah now this i found fascinating just like the lovecraft fan in me another rumor is that they were singing strange songs that were unknown to the church so that's weird Mm -hmm. um and then it was also rumored that he had joined the secret sect called the clisti and they were believed to engage in like ritual self-flagellation cannibalism ritualistic cannibalism orgies etc it's not super clear what? whether this Cleasty ever even really existed. Like, okay. this sounds real satanic panicky to me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, an historian named Joseph Furman, he disputes that Rasputin was ever part of this sect. Uh-huh. Said repeated investigations have failed to establish that he was ever a member. Today, people think this was really just rumors. Like, there's probably not a lot of truth to that. Mm. But he was known for having just this kind of magnetic personality and this intense charisma. Uh His fame started to expand beyond his village all throughout Siberia into like the early 1900s. Around 1904, he traveled to the city of Kazan, which is in Western Russia. So now he's getting out of Siberia. Okay. It was a city along the Volga River. And while he was there, he became known as a, quote, Staretz, which is a holy man. It was rumored while he was there that he was sleeping with his female followers. So there was some controversy. But he began, like, really impressing a lot of the official religious leaders of this city. So he impressed the head monk at a place called Seven Links Monastery, which Mm -hmm. is just outside of Kazan. And then other priests and bishops, one of whom even recommended him to the St. Petersburg Theological Seminary. And so this is where we get kind of off to the races with. Okay. So he goes to the seminary. This is in St. Petersburg. So this is like the cap, essentially the capital of the Russian empire. He continued to impress and befriend religious officials while he was there. And someone who was named Archie Mandrate Theophan, who I believe was like running the seminary. That sounds like a Reddit username. I know it does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I've seen it spelled a couple of different ways. Theophan or Theophan. So, okay. And this Theophan, he actually became the official confessor to the Tsar's family. 
he became super tight friends with Rasputin, even invited Rasputin to come live with him. And then he became one of Rasputin's most important allies. This gave Rasputin just like entry into like Russian high society. Okay. Diofan turns on him later, which I'll talk about. Okay. Um, spoiler so, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> like I said, this is a time where like there were all these alternative religious movements were getting popular. These kind of like folk sects of the Orthodox Church, breakaway sects, etc. But also this was a time sort of throughout Europe that like spiritualism, occultism, theosophy, you mm. know, Aleister Crowley, like all of this stuff is getting very popular, particularly with society people, like high mm. society people. This was true in the United Kingdom, it was true in continental Europe, and it was true in Russia. So Rasputin kind of just like fell right in line with that. Even though he was a Christian, he was sort of seen as like a Christian mystic. Okay. And his unconventional ideas and quote, strange manners made him like the subject of curiosity for all these like elite Russians in St. Petersburg. Mm. So he became friends with them. And among the people he became friends with were the Black Princesses of Montenegro. And I did not write down their names. Um, Mm -hmm. There's whole stories about them, too. But they had married the Tsar's cousins. So they were ultimately responsible for introducing Rasputin to the royal family. Oh, okay. So Rasputin first met Tsar Nicholas at the Peterhof Palace in 1905. And here's a letter that Nicholas wrote to one of his ministers after the meeting, he said, quote, a few days ago, I received a peasant from the Tobolsk district, Grigory Rasputin, who brought me an icon of St. Simeon Verkutori. He made a remarkably strong impression both on Her Majesty and on myself, so that instead of five minutes, our conversation went on for more than an hour. Dang. So that's from that Smithsonian article. So Douglas Smith says, we don't know what Rasputin and Nicholas talked about in this meeting, but Theophan, or this Theophan, Mm -hmm. later said that Rasputin told him that the Empress immediately fell under his influence, but it took a little longer with the Emperor. Ew. Yeah, right? Creepy. (laughs) It's very creepy. And then after that meeting, Rasputin actually wrote a letter to the Tsar. So I'm going to read the letter. It says, Great Emperor Tsar and autocrat of all Russia, greetings to you. May God give you sage advice. When advice comes from God, the soul rejoices. Our joy is genuine. But if it is stiff and formal, then the soul becomes despondent and our head is confused. All of Russia worries. She has descended into a terrible argument. She trembles in joy and rings her bells, calling for God. And God sends us mercy and scares our enemies with awe-inspiring threats. So they, the mad ones, are now left with a broken vessel and a foolish head, as the saying goes, quote, the devil has been busy for a long time, but finally ended up flying off from under the back porch. Such is the power of God and his miracles. Don't disdain our simple words. You, as our master, and we, as your subjects, must do our best. We tremble and pray to God to keep you safe from all evil, to protect from all wounds, now and in the future, so that your life will forever flow like a life-giving spring. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, <laughs> keep in mind that this was this is essentially right when that first Russian revolution is happening. Yeah. I'm just thinking the great uh, dress rehearsals. So. Right. I'm just thinking of getting a letter. I mean, he wasn't even like, how are you? How's the weather? No. Like what's, what's up? Like, how's, how's fucking Alexi doing? It's just like, Hey, <laughs> everything is bad. <laughs> like, yes. But you are anointed by God, but don't fuck up basically. Right. It's like, so 
Yeah. One, I mean, it, if I got a letter like that today, I'd be like, what the fuck is this chain mail like piece of yeah. shit I'm in just my mailbox? Getting that as a text message and just like <laughs> block. Like. Yeah, but block. <laughs> what the fuck? No. Um, but it's this is interesting. And so Douglas Smith talks about it. He says, like, this is evidence that Rasputin got his kind of hooks into the czar and the czarina and, right away. Yeah. Because he's like way overstepping his bounds here. Yeah. Like, he's not shy about talking to the czar about matters of state. This is the type of thing that if you overplay your hand here, this is what gets your head on a spike. Yeah. But no. Again, I'm also thinking of somebody like meeting President Biden at some type of event and then being like, dear Biden, yeah. <laughs> dear President Biden, the world is like... <laughs> I mean, that's like in this day and age, that's the type of shit that gets filtered out by the Secret Service, probably. Right. That they're like, coop, nope, like, nope. Start a file on that guy. Yeah. <laughs> but then the czar was like, oh, good point. Thank yeah. you. Mm, yes. Food for thought. Make sure uh, get bring Rasputin. all his letters to me immediately. Post taste. Yes. <laughs> so after this first meeting, uh, Rasputin traveled back to Poker, whatever the fucking town is that he's from. Mm-hmm. Um, he stayed there until July of 1906. Now he had started getting followers in St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. and some of them actually traveled home with him. One of whom was this woman, Olga Loktina. She was the daughter of a nobleman and a wife and mother in uh, St. Petersburg. She's married to an engineer and she would become his most fanatical devotee. Mm. She eventually came to believe that he was God himself. Wow. And she is kind of held up as an example of his like malign influence on people. So here's something she wrote. I think this was a letter she wrote home. She says, we slept where we could very often in one room, but we slept little listening to the spiritual conversations of Father Gregory who, so to speak, schooled us in nocturnal wakefulness. In the morning, if I got up early, I would pray with Father Gregory, praying with him tore me from the earth. I'm like, are there some hysterical paroxysms happening? Because like, (laughs) I mean, this doesn't sound like praying to me, you know? Yeah, like he's all, hey, come and pray in the field with me. And by pray, I mean, I'm going to stick my hand under your petticoats yeah exactly. yeah that is some i mean it's it's there there's a lot of like zealotry happening right. well just so much of this i'm like god he was i mean this is like charles fucking manson like mm. it's, it's just that same cult leader just magnetic personality that just people lose their fucking minds yeah so then you know he he spent it sounds like kind of several months to a year back in his hometown and then he returned to saint petersburg where he again met with the czar and his wife, with Alexandra. And then that's when he met the children for the first time. This is around when he started becoming known as the healer to Alexei, who had hemophilia. Okay. And like there are disputes about like when he kind of became the healer to the family. Like some say he was immediately introduced to the children, said, this is your new healer. Others say it was a year or two later, but at some point he really became like the main spiritual advisor to the czar and his wife. And also it was thought he could cure Alexei's hemophilia. Mm. So as he was brought in to be a healer, his influence just grew and grew. It seems to have started because Alexandra, you know, the wife of the czar, she believed she had seen him ease Alexei's stomach pains and then actually stopped his bleeding a couple times. What uh, bleeding? Just, you know, your random 
you start bleeding. Bruises can be life-threatening. I mean, it's. No, I mean, I know that, but like, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I, I, all of this is just like uh, incredible to me. <laughs> well, here's, here's one of the stories. So, okay. so the first time it was actually recorded that he was approached to pray for Alexi was in the spring of 1907. This was when Alexi was suffering from an internal hemorrhage. Rasputin prayed for the boy and Alexi recovered the next morning. And at this point, Alexandra developed a quote, passionate attachment to Rasputin, which put a pin in that. We'll come back to that. Passionate attachment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1912, Alexei developed another hemorrhage. This was in okay. his thigh and his groin. After essentially, I mean, this is how bad his hemophilia was. And I, I got to say, I feel real bad for this kid. Like he wasn't I, asked to be born into this. He was a no. child. Yeah. Got this life-threatening condition that at the mm -hmm. time, I believe now there are plenty of treatments for hemophilia and it's not considered nearly as life-threatening as it was. Yeah. But back in the beginning, yeah. At at the turn of the century, it was like, you know, be careful and good luck. This is not long after they thought the womb was an animal climbing through a woman's body. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was, it was was centuries later, but they were, but they were. (laughs) You get my point. You get my point. <laughs> so he developed- basically all medicine right. up until this point has just been a crapshoot. Like, yeah, just you know, throwing darts at a dartboard. Yeah, like stick a salve on it. Right, whatever. Some leeches, exactly. So <laughs> wish for the best. Um, so he developed this hemorrhage on his groin after being jolted on a carriage ride near his royal hunting ground. So that's how Jeez, like that's how vulnerable he was. Yeah. So he was in severe pain. He was delirious with fever. It seemed like he was close to death. Rasputin was back in Siberia. He wasn't even there. Alexandra, through a friend, desperately contacted him and mm. like begged for him to pray. So Rasputin telegrammed her back and he said, quote, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. Do not allow the doctors to bother him too much. Now, Alexei's condition didn't improve right away, but within a few days, the bleeding finally stopped. And here's a quote from one of his physicians, a guy named S.P. Fedorov. He says, the recovery was wholly inexplicable from a medical point of view. And he said he understood why Alexandra had become so devoted to Rasputin, Mm -hmm. because he said, quote, Rasputin would come in, walk up to the patient, look at him, and spit. The bleeding would stop in no time. How could the Empress not trust Rasputin after that? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. What so, the fuck? Yeah. Oh my god! And this is oh where, my like, god. There's stuff like you asked about the believability scale. I'm like, oh, this is fucking weird. Like, there's stuff about Rasputin that's genuinely fucking weird. No, I gotta say, like, I have a lot of sympathy not only for Alexi but for the family. Like, I think one of the mm, the myths, true. rumors that may be rooted in some truth that is like continued about Rasputin is how he had this like malign influence over Alexandra and the children, and mm-hmm. you know, might have been sex etc but like this is a story that like proves like this is why they were so like the doctor said like how can you blame her like she's desperate to keep her son alive and here's this guy who seems to be able to do something yeah but to this day it's really not known why alexia recovered because this particular injury should have killed him yeah and it's considered kind of one of the most genuinely mysterious parts of the Rasputin legend yeah i mean like you said i mean i get it like sick child you're desperate for a cure and somebody seems to be giving him if not a cure then at least recovery right and relief and i've just got to imagine like here you are you are the empress and the emperor of this vast nation this empire Mm -hmm. you have total power 
you know, like I said, this is the Iron Throne level of power. Yeah. And you can't get your son's blood to clot, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I just, I really empathize with the desperation there. But so she just progressively became convinced Mm -hmm. that Rasputin was a miracle worker. And so she was like, we need to keep Rasputin near. This is the only way that Alexei will survive. Now, it's known that Rasputin also became very close to the children. That the children sort of saw him like as a friend or like an uncle or, you know, but there are, I'll get to it. There's questions about that as well. Like the propriety Uh, of it? Yeah, exactly. Mm, Okay. So his power and influence continued to grow. At some point, I forgot to write down when, Nicholas named him the quote, Lampadnik, which means the lamplighter. So this meant that Rasputin was in charge of keeping all the lamps lit and all the religious icons throughout the palace. And this gave him pretty much unfettered access to the royal family. So he was just able to come in and out at will. But he was becoming increasingly, increasingly controversial with people who are either enemies of the royal family or close to the royal family. Like Mm. people were starting to really turn on Rasputin. So here's a quote from that Smithsonian article. It says, the press, unshackled thanks to the rights granted to them by Nicholas II in 1905, spread lurid tales about Rasputin both within Russia and abroad. Rumors about Rasputin's influence over the czarist regime spread throughout Europe. Petitioners, believing that Rasputin lived with the imperial family, mailed their requests to, quote, Rasputin, Tsar's Palace, St. Petersburg. So, I mean, he was like, yeah, there's like, and I think that this just like a sad irony where this Tsar Nicholas was like, we're going to increase civil liberties and open up press freedoms. And the press was like, you are in. Yeah, cool. Awesome. (laughs) You're stupid and you're, you've got a a (laughs) dude in your house who's going to mess everything up. So, you know, just these rumors continued to spread. And then, of course, the rumors grew to him seducing Alexandra, the Mm. Tsarina. Mm-hmm. And of course, seducing her daughters. Mm. Now, it needs to be mentioned that Alexandra was already deeply unpopular with the Russian people, oh. uh, largely because she was German. And this yep. is like World War One's heating up. Yeah. You know? So she was seen as this kind of foreign influence. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you get crazy Rasputin in there. People were like, what is up with the Empress? We're done. We're over this we're over revolt. This. Then church officials started to turn on him. So like back in his hometown, he was denounced as a heretic. And then the Bishop of Tobolsk actually launched an inquest into his activities. And this again, accused him as being part of this cleasty, self-flagellating cannibal sect. I wonder what the line is. Because I mean, if you like, if you believe in Christianity and the story of Jesus, there was a moment where he was just kind of rocking along and he had his followers and stuff. And he, everybody was like, okay, that's cool. That's that dude. And he's like doing some stuff and that's fine. But I I wonder where the line is when between like this person, this prophet, whatever is spouting this message and that's fine. And that, that person becoming a threat. I think it's all about power. Yeah. I think it's the more powerful someone becomes, the more enemies they, because, you know, you got to think like no shade to anyone who is uh, a member of the Orthodox church or the Catholic church mm-hmm. or really any major church. But the, these big churches, like at a certain point, it becomes less, or it be, I should say it becomes not only about religious belief, but it becomes about consolidation of power. So here, you know, you have this entrenched Orthodox power structure. And then here is Rasputin, the mad monk, got the ear of the Tsarina and the ear of the Tsar. Even if he's not a threat, you're going to see a threat. You know? Yeah, true. Um, 
and I'm gonna be honest, like I I don't trust Rasputin. Like <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff people say about him was was probably bullshit. And you know, going back to like the Elizabeth Bathory story, where right. like, when you dig into it, it's like mm, yeah, she was kind of scapegoated, right? For a lot of things. I think that's true to a degree with Rasputin, but I also think there was stuff about him that seems pretty shady, particularly his dealings with women and female followers. Right, and that's like this isn't to be like he was framed or anything like that, but rather it's just interesting to me with religion that religions start with a prophet, right? Right. They start with somebody who's like, Hey, I know the way of God, follow me and listen to my teachings. And they're based on that. But then anybody else who comes along in the history of it and is like, Hey, me too. Mm -hmm. They're like, Nope, absolutely not. Shut it down. There can't be anybody else. It, right. It's just it logically, it's something that doesn't make sense. Yeah, so I'm like, I, well, I, if that if 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 one person was and you started this whole thing because of that one person, mm-hmm. like nobody else can. Yeah, no, I mean, you see this throughout. I mean, this is obviously like, I mean, this this is tricky topic because this gets into like passion plays and like you know anti-Semitism, but like mm. it is true that the Jewish authorities in the Holy Land did not like Jesus because he was threatening their position within the community Mm, mm -hmm, you know because mm -hmm. it's like well if there's this new prophet coming along why do we have to listen to the old people right this this goes to i mean you see this throughout christian churches martin Martin luther right this goes to islam you know you have the nation of islam is kind of seen as heretics because elijah muhammad declared himself a prophet i mean right well and you know to sort of like play the other side of this as well because there Mm -hmm. are a lot of people who are you know i mean what's his name is it jim jones yeah right the jonestown guy and i mean and there's like david koresh right like the cult leaders charles manson Charles Manson, like 100% that's happening. But I guess the flip side of the logical argument for me is that I'm like, but what, like, why were the other ones okay? But these guys, like, it's just, I have a lot of well, questions. Because... I'm not trying to offend anyone. No, um, no. But I, I'm like, I mean, aren't it's... they all cult leaders? Well, I mean. As I get struck by lightning. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, you know, we pissed off all the atheists a few weeks ago. Right, so right. Let's piss off the religious people. But like, um, <laughs> I mean, every religious figure starts as a cult leader. And it's kind of the ones who become like the great religious figures throughout history are just the ones that they consolidated their power successfully. You know, the movements didn't die. You know, the other ones are denounced as heretics. And the fact is, like, I think a certain amount of healthy skepticism is appropriate when someone comes to you and tells you they are a prophet of God. (laughs) 100%. Not to say there aren't prophet of gods. Like I said, I'm an agnostic. What the fuck do I know? Right. But if, you know, you right now on this podcast were like, hey, Scotty, you know who was talking to me yesterday? Jesus. I'd be like, "Mm." (laughs) And then we just hear your headphones drop. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, let's let's discuss further. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> press pause on the recording right. and let's unpack that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, I'm having divine visions and stuff. Well, right. I mean, and that's I mean, that's the other thing too, right? Is that like a big a big reason I have all these questions, and they all made me very unpopular in Catholic school. Is again, <laughs> we're we're talking about a lot of men. Yeah. And it seems to be that part of you know being a a prophet is that you get to sleep with your female followers. I mean, this sure seems to be a pattern, doesn't it? Like, it does. And it's not that there have never been female cult leaders. We have one in New Mexico, actually. Uh, oh, I think, right. she, I think she is since died, but like, she's a genuine crazy. 
Yeah. To talk about her. I don't remember her name, so I'm going to move on from it. But that's actually a story for the podcast at some point. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, there's a lot of, and I mean, I get it. But it's like, uh, it's a lot of dudes trying to stick their penises in other people. Like I saw, I saw a cartoon the other day. It was probably right around Easter, but I saw a cartoon the other day of the resurrection. Right. And it's like the three women that go to Jesus's tomb and uh, they look in there and it's empty. And then the next panel is them like coming out to like a crowd of men. And they're like, you're never going to guess what's happened. You know? And the group of men are like, thanks for that. Like, we'll take it from here. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that is literally all of religion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, where are the women? Where are they? Yeah. I mean, not all lot of them yeah not, not a lot yeah and and i think rasputin like falls in this line so that's why mm-hmm. i say like you know a, a lot of the stuff about him does seem like bullshit and like scapegoating mm-hmm. and a lot of it is like i think the dude was a fucking creep yeah yeah <laughs> like, yeah like there, there's a lot of smoke but there's some fire so he was accused of seducing Alexandra and her daughters. The church was turning against him. And then the political class started turning against him. So he was opposed by both the prime minister mm. and by the head of the czar's secret police. Mm-hmm. But his influence continued to grow with the royal family. So when the prime minister actually went to the czar and kind of confronted him about Rasputin, the czar refused to remove him from royal service or exile him from the city. Do you have a question? Or- no, sorry. No? Okay. <laughs> um, and then it gets darker. In 1909, a woman named Kehionia Berlaiskaya, mm-hmm. uh, she had been one of his earliest and most fervent supporters, but she ended up accusing Rasputin of rape. She said he raped her on a train on the way back to Siberia. So she went to this Theophan. Remember, Theophan was the guy who's running the seminary who was the confessor right. uh, to the czar and had been a big supporter of Rasputin. Theophan listened to her story, decided that he believed her. So he wrote a letter to the czar. So this is a quote from that, that Douglas Smith book. Theophan had received new information that not only confirmed his suspicions of the previous year, but presented a much darker image of Rasputin than he had imagined. Such had been Theophan's shock upon learning these new details, and then realizing that neither the emperor nor empress would deign to acknowledge them, that he fell ill and suffered a paralysis of the face. The new information that Theophan had received was a written confession by Kionia Berledskaya, once one of Rasputin's most devoted acolytes. She now called Rasputin a Clist, so that Clisty mm-hmm. sect again, and a sex maniac, a prisoner of his own quote devilish delusion. Berlitzka detailed Rasputin's violent nature, noting how he liked to beat Praskovia, his wife, and other women around him, and kept them all virtual hostages at his home. She claimed that several years earlier, Rasputin had raped her on the train from St. Petersburg to, again, hometown. I'm not going to try to pronounce. Mm-hmm. Now, it should be noted that a lot of people have questioned her claims. And Smith, does Douglas Smith some, like, he seems pretty skeptical. So he kind of said that a lot of people believe that it's exaggerated for effect, that she was kind of like a cat's paw of the political and religious forces that were mobilizing against him. Mm-hmm. But no one really knows. At any mm-hmm. rate, there was an attempt to use her claims to sort of drive a wedge between Rasputin and the royal family. Okay. So after he read the letter from Theophan, Tsar Nicholas summoned Rasputin to answer the charges. So this is, again, from that book. It says, Rasputin replied by asking the Tsar whether he enjoyed reading in the lives of the saints about how they had been mocked by slanderers. No, the emperor said. And with that, he threw the letter into the fireplace. So didn't work. Still, mm-hmm. still deeply entrenched with the royal family. Mm-hmm. 
So as the rumors continued to grow, now the rumor became that Rasputin had not only seduced the Tsarina, but that he had actually raped the teenage daughters. So hadn't seduced them, but had actually forcefully raped them. Okay. Um, Again, no one knows. No one knows exactly what is true and what's not in this. I've read a bit about Anastasia and like her relationship to Rasputin. I actually don't tend to believe that he was doing anything particularly untoward with the daughters, but there were a lot of questions raised because he was like known to like go into their quarters, which was seen as like unseemly or inappropriate. Yeah. But all the correspondence from Anastasia, at least sort of really seems to regard him as like a familiar figure, like almost like a father figure or like an uncle. Like, so I'm not, I don't tend to believe those stories. Again, I don't know. I do wonder what was up with him and Alexandra. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But again, we don't, we really don't know. It could have just been, she was so desperate to save her son's life. That was what fueled it. Whether he abused that in any way, we don't really know. Yeah. So all of this was combining with the anti-German hatred towards Alexandra and then the unrest that was sort of a result of the Russo-Japanese War, World War One, and then the sort of collapse of like the feudal political structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so Russia's economy and just general power was declining rapidly. The czar was losing his control over the country. This led to that first revolution, the great dress rehearsal. And then of course, to the rise of the Bolsheviks in the 1910s. Okay. And this would build to the 1917 Russian revolution, which essentially overthrew the czar's regime. But Rasputin became like the go-to scapegoat for a lot of people. They were blaming the evil Rasputin and his influence on the royal family for all of the ills of Russia. One member of the Duma, which was like their sort of legislative body, a guy named Vladimir Pirishkovich, said in November 1916 that the Tsar's ministers and advisors had been, quote, turned into marionettes, marionettes whose threads have been taken firmly in hand by Rasputin and the Empress Alexandra Fyodorovna, the evil genius of Russia, and the Tsarina, who has remained a German on the Russian throne and alien to the country and its people. And there's like, I'll I'll post some on social media, there's like cartoons in like Russian newspapers at the time Mm -hmm. that show him as like the evil overlord and them as like puppets and... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the first attempt to kill Rasputin came on July 12th, 1914. A 33-year-old peasant woman named Shionya Guseva stabbed him in the stomach when he was outside of his home in Pokrovskoya. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guseva was a follower of a man named Iliador. Iliador was a former priest and follower of Rasputin's, but he was also a radical conservative and anti-Semite. And he ended up turning on Rasputin and denouncing him as a self-aggrandizer and a sexual deviant. He had tried to turn the royals against Rasputin in 1911. Like everyone was trying to turn the royals against him. Wasn't working. Mm-hmm. They ended up driving him from St. Petersburg and then defrocked him. Okay. Uh, but he kept growing a following amongst like ultra-conservative and nationalists. So this woman, this Chionia Guseva, she was a follower of this guy, this Iliador. After the stabbing, he was rushed into surgery. It was not clear that he would survive, but he did ultimately recover. Guseva claimed that she acted alone. She said she believed Rasputin was a, quote, false prophet and even an antichrist. But the police and Rasputin believed that this Iliador was behind the attack. He ended up fleeing the country, and I think he came to the United States. She was ultimately found not guilty or not responsible due to, like, insanity Mm. 
Okay. Second assassination and much more successful assassination attempt, <laughs> uh, but sort of barely successful, which we'll talk about. <laughs> okay. So in 1916, a group of nobles led by uh, Prince Felix Yusuprov, the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, and then this Vladimir Parishkevich, who is a right-wing politician, member of the Duma, mm-hmm. they decided they were going to end Rasputin's influence once and for all by killing so Yusuprov was part of the royal family. He was the husband of the Tsar's niece. Okay. Um, so what happened was Yusuprov lured Rasputin to his palace in St. Petersburg. It was called Moika Palace. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure how he lured him there, but he was like, yeah, come over, hang out, let's talk, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> come over, we'll just, we're just going to hang yeah. <laughs> and like play some parcheesy. It's going to be real chill. And then Rasputin gets there and like he hears music playing. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what's going on? And you was like, oh, my wife is holding a dinner party. So why don't we go down into the basement and hang out? Mm-hmm. And they get down to the basement and you was like, hey, look, I've got these cakes and some tea just happened to be laced with cyanide. Yeah. And Rasputin at first was like, ah, I don't need any. And, but then after a few minutes, he was like, eh, give me those fucking cakes. Um, direct quote. <laughs> right. He's like, I'm fucking hungry. Fucking hungry. Being a profit is hard work. <laughs> give me ke- give me cakes. Give me teas. I'd like a cheese platter. Yeah. yeah. So he starts eating these cakes. Now, there's a lot of dispute around what actually happened, but I'm going to tell the fun version of the story. Okay. Which is Yusuprov's version. Okay. Um, so he says Rasputin starts eating the cakes, and Yusuprov is amazed and shocked because the poison's not affecting him at all so finally rasputin's just scarfing down these cakes turns to yusuprov and he's like i want some wine i guess he'd given up on his whole like not right not drinking thing at this point right um and he really loved madeira wine so he's like give me some of that wine which had also conveniently been poisoned he drank three glasses of the wine still no effect from the cyanide so Yusuprov at this point is like, what the fuck's going on? So he's like, hey, Rasputin, like, hang out for a second. I'm going to go check on my wife. Oh, before he left, uh, here's a quote from that Smith book. It says, Yusuprov grew nervous. The two men were now sitting across from each other at the table, their eyes locked. Now see an angry Rasputin suddenly let out, you're wasting my time. You can't do anything to me. Yusuprov felt certain that Rasputin now knew why he had invited him to his home. But he got up and, spying Yusuprov's guitar in the chair, asked him to sing a song. Yusuprov obliged, singing one, and then another Russian ditty. So here's this guy, like, full of cyanide being like, fucking sing to me. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, Yusuprov's like, "I'm." it's like 2.30 in the morning. He's like, I'm going to go check on my wife. Mm -hmm. He goes upstairs where the other conspirators were waiting. So Pavlovich gave Yusuprov a revolver. Yusuprov went back down into the basement and he found Rasputin, quote, drooping and breathing heavily. But after yet another glass of Madeira, Rasputin revived and talked of them of going to see the gypsies. What? Oh my God. Okay. But at this point, like Yusuprov was like, I'm fucking fucking done with this guy. Mm -hmm. So he looks at Rasputin and he says, you better look at the crucifix and then say a prayer. I guess there was a crucifix hanging on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then he shot Rasputin in the chest. Rasputin collapses. Yusuprov goes upstairs. One of the other conspirators put on Rasputin's hat and coat. And a few of them left to go to Rasputin's apartment. And it sounds like the idea was they were going to parade this guy around wearing his hat and coat. So mm-hmm. the people would think Rasputin was like home when this happened. Okay. Yusuprov and this Parishkovich, the guy in the Duma, they hung out upstairs for a while and they were like congratulating themselves on saving Russia from the grips of Rasputin. Mm. but then this is from that uh douglas smith book 
It says, quote, and then a strange feeling swept over Yusuprab. And he went back downstairs to make certain that Rasputin was indeed dead. He felt for a pulse, nothing. But then, as he turned to leave, he saw something. Rasputin's left eye was quivering. His face began to twitch. And suddenly his left eye opened, then the right. The green eyes of a viper, Yusuprab wrote, staring at me with diabolical hatred. <laughs> so dude's not dead so the quote continues it says with a sudden violent effort Rasputin leapt to his feet foaming at the mouth a wild roar echoed throughout the vaulted rooms he rushed at me trying to get at my throat and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws this devil who is dying of poison who had a bullet in his heart must have been raised from the dead by powers of evil There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. I realize now who Rasputin really was. It was the reincarnation of Satan himself who held me in his clutches and would Mm. never let me go till my dying day. Um, Now, again, like I said, a lot of people are like, you surprise, like you're, you're making some shit up here. Yeah. I'm telling the story because this is the fun version of the story. Okay. Right. right, right. Um, (laughs) So you surprise, he got away, ran upstairs, Rasputin followed. And then managed to make it all the way out to the courtyard of the palace before Parishkovich took the revolver and shot him two more times. At that point, he collapsed again. So Yusuprov and Parishkovich, they wrapped his body in cloth and then took it to a bridge that I forgot to write down the name of the bridge, but a big bridge in the area. And they dumped his body into the Malaya Nevka River. Okay. So it sounds like uh, uh, Rasputin's dead at this point, right? Mm. Maybe <laughs> So news of the murder spread before they even found his body because this Parishkovich basically bragged about it. Um, he went to two soldiers and a policeman and was like, yeah, we fucking killed Rasputin, but like, don't tell anyone. And they're like, cool, cool. And then they just <laughs> went and told everybody. Um, so two workmen, so it was the Petrovsky Bridge. Um, mm. Two workmen found blood on the railing of the bridge. And then they found a boot on the ice below. So the police searched and they found Rasputin's body under the river ice on January 1st, about 200 meters downstream of where he was dumped. But when they found the body, it appeared that he had managed to untie his hands and had tried to climb out of the river before finally freezing to death. So the claim is that even after all of this, he still wasn't dead. Um, now this Douglas Smith guy, he's like, put a pin in this. Like, okay, let's, okay, relax. Like, again, just everything with Aspen. There's lots of myth making and stuff. So it's one of those where it's like, I kind of want to believe this story, but I'm not sure how much I believe. Yeah, it. right. But at this point, he was actually dead. So they buried him on January 2nd at a small church near St. Petersburg. The funeral was attended only by the royal family and by a few of their friends. His own wife and children were not invited. This is from that uh, Smithsonian article. It says, quote, to the dismay of Yusuprov and his co-conspirators, Rasputin's murder did not lead to a radical change in Nicholas and Alexandra's polities. To the emergent Bolsheviks, Rasputin symbolized the corruption at the heart of the imperial court. And his murder was seen rather accurately as an attempt by the nobility to hold on to power at the continued expense of the proletariat. To them, Rasputin represented the broader problems with Tsarism. In the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, provisional government leader Alexander Kerensky went so far as to say, without Rasputin, there would have been no Lenin. Okay. A couple years later, uh, the Tsar abdicated the throne, forced to abdicate. At that point, Rasputin's body was exhumed and then burned by a detachment of soldiers because they didn't want his grave to become like a rallying point for any supporters mm. of the old regime. I was like, were they still worried about it? 
I mean, they might have been. <laughs> to be They're honest. like, we're doing this so that he like doesn't become a martyr, but really because we're scared he's a vampire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then of course, uh, Tsar Nicholas was forced to abdicate on March 15th, 1917. At this point, the royal family was put under house arrest. They were kind of moved between a bunch of different residencies before the entire family was executed by firing squad in the basement of a home in Yekaterinburg on April 25th, 1918. And I'd like to do the story of the end of the Romanons at some point, because that's Mm. fucking fascinating, but it's Mm -hmm. grim as shit. Oh, okay. And that is the story of Rasputin, the mad monk. Oh, so much. Like, yeah, I can 100% see how that's a hard story to like. Condense. (laughs) Yeah. To like really put a fine point on. Yeah. Well, and it's it's just all of the the rabbit holes you can go down just about the czars, about the deaths of the Romanov family, about mm-hmm. the conspiracy theories about Anastasia. Like, and that's been pretty so, that's been pretty debunked. It's been debunked. Right? They've they've okay. since found her body, and I think through genetic testing they were able to determine that it was her. But there was a whole there was this woman, I, I'm not remembering her name, but like she popped up in like Poland or Germany or somewhere mm-hmm. in like the twenties and spent the rest of her life claiming to be Princess Anastasia. I wonder what was going on with her. Like, did uh, she, like, was she really like, did she really believe it? Or was she trying to pull a bit con? It sounded like she had a real history of mental illness, but they have been able to determine who she was. Um, oh. to, again, through like genetic testing, they were like, mm-hmm. eh, she's not related to the Romanovs, but she is related to the family that she, we thought she was. And, uh, but there have been other like pretenders to mm. claiming to be, Anastasia, you know, so it's like there's a fucking, it's not a Disney movie, but it's like came out in like that late 90s Disney wave about. Her. Yes. Yeah. It, you're right. It is. It's, it's not a Disney movie, but it's, there's a, I mean, there's a whole musical. I think, yeah. I don't know if they turned that movie into a musical, but there, I mean, there's a lot of, I remember hearing and about I believe the story when I was younger and is like the villain of those movies. In that probably. Movie. Yeah, Yeah. probably. But yeah, I remember hearing the story when I was younger and being like terribly, terribly fascinated with it. Mm -hmm. I also watched a movie about it because I can't remember if I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I tend to do this with a lot of things. Like when I find something that I like, I consume it to a point where I'm like, okay, no more ever again. The only thing I don't do that with is foods. Like I don't go like on a tear with certain foods, but like songs are like on repeat until I'm like, I can't hear them anymore. Movies. (laughs) Uh, When I was very young, I I watched Romancing the Stone until I like wore the tape out. Yeah, you've talked um, about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a massive crush on Christian Bale. Mm. So I have seen his like entire filmography and he played Alexi when he was, I think he, I think that was, no, because I think Empire of the Sun was his first movie. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was, but it, it was, was shortly after, I think. Yeah, because he was little, he was a child. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Alexi, I mean, he was, I think he was like 12 or 13. When they were mm-hmm. and yeah and the end like the actual like not to go too deeply into it but it's it's a pretty grimy end to the romanovs because they had yeah. been in house arrest they've been shuttled back and forth they're essentially being guarded by the bolsheviks who like hated them mm-hmm. like there are stories i've read where like the daughters would poke their heads out the windows just to get a breath of fresh air and the mm-hmm. soldiers would start taking shots at them so wow. like they were just waiting to kill these people mm-hmm. and then i think it was like the white army which was the they were not like necessarily pro-royalist, but they were anti-Bolshevik. Okay. We're like advancing on wherever they're holding the czar. And so rather than turn over the family, the order came down, just take them down to the basement and just gun them down. And they just <sighs> gunned the entire family down. 
it's it's pretty it's pretty awful and and yeah. like i mean i'm all for like i'm not a fan of monarchies i don't get the fascination everyone has with like prince harry and you know all that stuff yeah um but i'm like it's pretty sad to just i mean it's just, it's a family down. yeah it's, it's a, family a family that got gunned down and um, it sounds like you know as opposed to a lot of royal families i mean i do believe from what i've read about them like they genuinely loved each other yeah czar nicholas and alexandra genuinely loved each other she deeply loved her children yeah deeply wanted you know to save her son's life so it's just you know they were they were bad rulers but i don't necessarily think they were evil people and yeah you know and that's like that thing where i think there is a a thing that happens with people who are like far removed from things it's like the people who wear the che guevara t-shirts and stuff it's like yeah it's easy to conflate socialism with this and say like well it wasn't so bad because you know socialism is not bad but it's like the bolsheviks were fucking awful like yeah the soviets were fucking awful <laughs> yeah like we don't need to romanticize you know we we can be against the the royalist whatever elite aristocracy mm-hmm. all at the same time being like yeah but we don't want to become these other people either yeah yeah i mean you know someone's principles and the way that they go about achieving those principles can be two very different things right and that stuff is rarely done without some pretty bloody work. Well, so. I mean, not, <laughs> this is like a random, but like I, I keep referring to the czar as being like, you know, the Iron Throne. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of like, all the people who are upset at the ending of Game of Thrones. I know we've talked about this a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Because like they wanted like the happy ending of mm-hmm. like Queen Daenerys gets to rule all forever. Mm-hmm. It's like, have you guys been watching this fucking show? Like you missed the entire point of this story. If you think that there was a happy ending at the end of any of this. Yeah. Or any yeah. of these people. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. I mean, it's it's also some pretty heavy blind spots for like everything that that character showed throughout the show well and particularly having also been i mean i don't want to go on a big game of thrones tangent but yeah (laughs) like being like a super fan of the books is it's like yeah even before that last season i was like pretty suspicious of where the daenerys story was going on that show because it's like she's shown both on the show and the books is like you know there's the whole quote in the books about you know every time a targaryen is born the gods flip a coin and the people wait to see how it lands Mm, mm -hmm. and it's like i'm not sure her coin is going to come up on the right side like early in the story (laughs) like there's a lot of shit she does where it's like yeah you know but it's like like whenever you get into these power structures and you know the same thing happened to the bolsheviks marxism may have started with like the best of intentions but by the time people start consolidating power doesn't matter what your original ideology is you know yep you know yeah corrupts it does indeed anyway (laughs) on that happy note Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As um, always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, like, share, tell your grandma about us. Listen, my mom listens to this podcast and yeah. she has a good time. So share it with people. Don't be scared, even though we cuss a lot. Sorry, mom. And talk about vibrators. And talk about vibrators and, <laughs> and vulvas and, and orgasms and right. revolutions. Yeah. All right. And well. until then, I guess, uh, stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>